Uh, and then when you get your Bible, or if you brought a Bible with you, I want to encourage you to open to the letter of Paul to the Philippians. Uh, letter to the Philippians. We'll be in chapter 3 this morning. Some things in life are worth fighting for. I think you've heard that phrase before. We, we hear that phrase often. Some things are worth fighting for. I, I wonder what you would say is worth fighting for. I wonder how you would answer that question. Another hour of sleep is worth fighting for this morning, maybe. Some donuts would have been worth fighting for, maybe. Uh, what are those things that you think are worth fighting for? What do you fight over? Um, thinking about junior hires, a few thoughts come to mind for me. What are those things that we, we fight over? Last brownie, just a pan of chocolatey goodness, and there's just one left. Who's going to get it? Probably going to fight over that, or maybe that last little bit of milk when there's two of you who want cereal. This is a lot of cereal, probably only milk for one, likely going to fight over that. Uh, You fight over trying to get in the bathroom in the morning, at least that happens at my house. Lots of things that we we fight over, but are they worth fighting for? We fight over the best seat on the couch or who gets to pick the movie. We fight over who rides shotgun or whose turn it is to play the switch or whatever, you, whatever you're rocking these days. People fight over all kinds of stuff. This group in particular, I think we fight over who's the best at gaga ball. Whether you want to admit it or not, you want to, to win that match of gaga ball and you certainly want to win the, the winter camp championships of gaga ball. I know you do. You fight over it. You want it. Here in junior high, we may fight over what's better, homeschooling or public school or private school. We'll fight over what's better, In-N-Out or Chick-fil-A, Taco Bell or Del Taco or maybe just neither. I don't know. (laughs) That, That last one. What do we fight over? What are these things that we fight over? Are they worth it? What do people fight for? It should be of no surprise to you that most people in our world think that personal happiness is worth fighting for. Just being happy. Happiness is is number one, and it's worth fighting for. The dream job and all the stuff that goes with it. It's worth fighting for. That house, that car, the right friends, the right spouse, the respect that we think that we deserve, people fight for that stuff. Whatever's going to make you happy, happiness is number one, and I'm going to fight. I'm going to fight for that. Our world embraces that. They love that. They fight for that personal happiness. Are they right? Is that something that should consume our lives? Do they, the people in our world, do they do they have it? right? Should we just be chasing happiness? Let's think about that a little closer to home. How does a junior hire think about happiness? Maybe it's good grades. Maybe it's, you know, playing all the sports. 
Maybe it's having a closet full of the right clothes or having the right friends, being in the right crowds. These are the things that are going to make me happy. And we start to chase after those things. Just like the world believes, we get convinced that it's that stuff that's worth fighting for. It's crucial to understand that the problem with a lot of those things is often us. A lot of those on that list are good things, but we let those control us. We let them consume us. We get obsessed with with those things, and we we start to believe that it's only those things that are going to offer us true happiness. And let me push this one step further. How should a, not just a junior higher, but a a young Christian, a, a Christian who's in junior high, how should they think about happiness or about joy or about what is it that's worth, worth fighting for? You believe the gospel that that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. You believe that his death paid for your sin. You've embraced that and you want to leave your sin behind and you want to follow Christ. What should you be fighting for? And you start to notice you have kind of the same temptations as those who aren't following Christ. Sin is still a problem. You're saying things that you regret. You're thinking things that you wish you didn't. You're doing things that you wish you could take back. Sin is still a problem. And not only sin, but trials in life, real trouble, real hardship. They find their way into your life and joy is just long gone. Sin tempts you to lose the joy that you should have as a believer. And you begin to fight for the wrong things. And Life keeps coming at you and trials and trouble and it causes you to start looking for joy and happiness in the things of the world. We do that in replacement of our relationship with Jesus. We begin to think more about popularity and possessions and comfort and joy in the Lord grows distant. Our relationship in Christ starts to mean less and less. And when we lose our joy in what Christ has done and our our joy in him isn't what it should be, we're in dangerous territory. We're not going to grow spiritually like we should. We're not going to be serving the Lord like we should. We're not going to be using our spiritual gifts the way that he intends us to do. We're not going to be his workmanship that he's called us to be when when we're, we're, we're distant from him and our joy in him isn't what it should be, we're going to have a testimony that's weak. Our, our light for Christ is going to be dim. When joy in the Lord is absent, it can be really difficult to tell the difference between a believer and an unbeliever, a Christian and a non-Christian. We're to have joy in the Lord. What does a Christian fight for? We should fight for joy in our relationship with Jesus. God's told us in his word that he wants that top spot in our life. He wants those who follow him to love him. He wants to be first. He wants to be loved above all else. Not your grades, not your sports, 
Not your gaming, not your closet, not a friendship. Definitely not a boyfriend. Too young for that nonsense. It's not that stuff that, that is supposed to have the top spot. God reminds us in his word, it's a relationship with him that matters most. That's what we should be fighting for. Jesus can't make it much clearer or easier for us to, uh, us to understand than when he told the Pharisees that the greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind. That's how a Christian lives. That's the source of a Christian's joy. A Christian loves Jesus, and they fight for that relationship with him. A Christian's joy is in Christ. So I wonder what you're fighting for this morning. Are you fighting for the right things? Are you fighting for the wrong things? A young Christian, she should love Jesus. A young Christian, he should fight for joy in the Lord. Our big idea this morning is Joy in the Lord is something worth fighting for, and we'll, we'll see this right here in chapter 3, starting in verse 1 of Philippians. Joy in the Lord is something worth fighting for. Look at God's word with me, Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. A Christian is a joyful person. And they're joyful because of their relationship with Jesus. Joyful because they know the truth. A Christian should be characterized as someone who is joyful and joy-filled. Like, that's so important. And I want to break down these three verses this way. The call for joy is pretty hard to miss in verse 1, but... Paul gives us more here. He, he doesn't just say, be joyful. He doesn't just give this direction with no explanation. He, he tells them what will rob them of joy. He, he gives the Philippians this great reminder of what will energize their joy or, or help their joy to grow. And, and that's what I want us to see this morning. I want you to walk out of here knowing that a Christian fights for joy, but I want you to know how to fight for it. It's all here. And we'll start right here in verse 1. First point, a Christian's joy is permanent. A Christian's joy is permanent. In other words, a, Christ, a Christian has a, a reason to be joyful, and that reason never changes. Christians have a, a permanent reason to be joyful. Verse 1 says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Philippians is actually an incredible look at what it is to be a Christian. I think if you know me at all, you know that I 
We, we cover that topic a lot here in exchange. Not only what is the gospel, but how then should a Christian live? How is a Christian called to live? And Philippians is a great place to look at that and, and understand what it is to be a Christian. Paul is such a good teacher. He, he makes this truth that sometimes can be difficult to understand. He makes it really simple and clear for us to follow, like putting it on the table and just inviting you in for a closer look. That's what he does in the letter to the Philippians from chapter 1, verse 27, all the way through the end of chapter 2. We have an awesome look at what it is to be a Christian, how a Christian lives. And as he often does, he talks about it in a way in its connection to the gospel, that Christians live worthy of the gospel. Not that they're earning salvation, but that they're living in a way that represents what the gospel has done. Worthy of this change that's happened. Worthy of this new creation that the gospel has made you. From chapter 1 through chapter 2, we, just, we see what it is. What is it? A Christian, verse 27, they, they share the good news with others kind of outside the church. We're thinking of it that way. They're ready to endure suffering. They work hard at maintaining unity inside the church. As we get into chapter two, a Christian's humble. They try to love others. They try to prefer others rather than just themselves all the time, but they do that because of Christ's love for them. They try to be unified in the church. We have all these people who are so different and have so many different preferences and opinions. But yet we have this ultimate thing in common. We are all saved by the same gospel. God's love and God's grace and God's mercy have all worked in our lives the same. And so because of that, we have this ultimate thing in common. So Christians put that above our differences and we desire to live in unity with each other. What else does Paul say? Christians care about their spiritual growth. We read about that in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 2. Paul details what spiritual growth is all about, how it works, why we need it, how to pursue it. So helpful. And he sort of exposes this number one kind of wrecker of spiritual growth. And it's such a shock to us. It's complaining. It's grumbling. When Christians complain and grumble, just like everybody else does, it, it ruins our spiritual growth. It ruins our testimony to the world around us. And Paul gives these great examples of, of men who, who are growing and living as Christians. You could maybe summarize all that by saying Christians live in community with other believers, and they also live for the interests of Christ. So as we turn the page into chapter 3, Paul says, finally, uh, finally, re rejoice in the Lord. It's, it's a word that, you know, makes us think that he's done. Like when a pastor or preacher says, you know, let me, let me close with this. Everybody's like, sweet, <laughs> Bible shut, note shut, let's go. That's the same kind of word that Paul's using here, like, finally, I'm done, but clearly he has a lot more to say. God knew the Philippians needed more. We need more. There's more to the Christian life. What is that? Well, it's this, and it's really important. Christians need to insist on joy in the Lord. They need to fight 
for their joy in their relationship with Christ. It's, it's actually a command. It's an order. It's, it's something that we can't afford to ignore. We have to listen to this. We have to put this into practice. You could think of it this way. It's commanded because there's always going to be something that's trying to squash your joy in the Lord. There's always going to be something in life that's trying to wreck it and ruin it and minimize it. So we have to insist on it. We have to fight for it. Believers need to rejoice. They need real joy. And we need to think about joy for just a minute because most of us have an understanding that joy is it's circumstantial. Huge word for junior high, especially on a time change morning. So circumstantial, what do I mean by that? Let me explain that. Our joy is often connected to whether or not things are going well. Things are good, joy is good. Things are bad, there is no joy. That's often how we think about happiness, how we think about joy. It's so easy to be joyful and happy when times are good, when everything's going our way. Was at a six-year-old's birthday party yesterday. She was just having a great day. <laughs> it's hard not to. Presents. There was donuts, like a 10-pound donut. It was just, you know, friends. All the attention was on her. Of course she's full of joy. It's hard not to be. So often, that's how we determine whether or not we're going to be happy or, or joyful. We connect it to when things are going well. Surely, Paul doesn't expect the Philippians to be joyful when times are tough, right? Surely, God doesn't expect that of us. That's exactly what he's getting at. It's exactly what it is. Paul's calling these people to rejoice no matter their circumstances, Junior hires, that's, that's true of us as well. That's precisely how God is instructing us. It doesn't matter what's going on. It doesn't matter how good or how bad. We have a permanent reason to rejoice. These Philippians, they were really struggling. These people were struggling financially. They were barely making ends meet. We read about that in chapter 4. They're being persecuted in their faith. We, we pick that up from chapter one. They're socially rejected. They're financially burdened. I mean, this is the hard stuff of life, being shunned and rejected. They're being persecuted. They're not sure where their, where their money's going to come for their next meal or how they're going to be able to provide and live. And Paul says, doesn't matter. Rejoice in the Lord. Life isn't super easy for them, and Paul still calls for it. God still calls for it. And it's not just fake joy, not just going through the motions that you're all good. This isn't a, you know what, if you could just put a smile on, that would be great. That's not what it is. Paul's helping us think about how incredible our relationship with God really is. We have a huge reason for joy. 
a bigger reason than the size of our problems. You don't need to pretend that nothing's wrong. You just need to remember that your relationship with God far outweighs the biggest of your problems. So much more important. Jesus is that big. Your problems can't compete with, with him. It's an overwhelming joy, gospel joy that should, should never, ever take a back seat to the problems of life. Junior Hires, I know that some of you have real problems. I know that some of you are going through really difficult circumstances in life. I know that some of you are going through things that your f- friends around you can't even begin to relate to. Yet if you're a Christian, you have an incredible reason to be joyful. As we think about our problems, Paul's directing our minds to think about who it is we're called to have joy in. You have mountainous problems. Paul's directing you to have joy and trust in the maker of mountains. Not just joy and personal happiness. Not because you're having a good hair day or because you're going out to lunch after church. That's not a reason to be joyful. Not joy in circumstances, but joy in the Lord. Joy in the unmatched, unparalleled, unrivaled God. The the Christian has an incredible reason for joy, and it's a reason that never, ever changes. Isn't that awesome? Your salvation is sealed, and it's, it's fixed. You belong to God, and you can and should be joyful, no matter what. The rest of verse 1, Paul says to write the same things again is no trouble to me. It's, it's safe for you. It's not a waste to be reminded of this. It's, it matters. It's significant. It's important. Young Christian needs to know that they have permanent reasons for joy. They should fight for this joy. Fight for it. How do we do that? How do we go about fighting for joy? Well, this is how to do it. Number two, a Christian's joy is protected by the truth of God's word. In other words, our joy is directly connected to the truth that we know, the truth that we live by, the truth that we believe, the truth of God's word that we know and embrace. That will absolutely impact our joy. Look at verse 2. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Three times, Paul says, beware or, or look out. It's a word that's used of something that's dangerous. We're to watch out for it. We're to be aware of this thing, to not let it take us by surprise. And it's not an it here, but a them. Paul's talking about False teachers, calls them dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh. It's harsh language, but it's precisely what they are. These teachers are Judaizers. What's that? You've maybe heard that word before, Judaizers. Well, they were 
Jews who wanted to believe the truth of the gospel. They wanted to believe in what Jesus was teaching, but they also wanted to add some stuff to it. They had a hard time separating from the Jewish faith, especially what God had instructed them to do in the Old Testament. So they were like, hey, Jesus died on the cross. Cool. But we also have to do some Old Testament stuff. If you really want to live pleasing to God, if you really want to be a Christian, we also are going to need to do some stuff. say, well, what's that about? Why is that so bad? The problem with it is you're, you're adding works to the gospel. It was Jesus plus something else. Paul says they're dogs, they're evildoers, they're the false circumcision or the mutilators of the flesh, they're, they're dogs, you know, it's not a cute fluffy dog, it's not your dog at home, it's not nice, it's not what's up dog either, this is something very, very different, it's a slang word, it's a word that Jews used for Gentiles, it was a, a word they used to describe those who were outside of God's love and God's community, It was a huge insult, and it's hilarious because Paul uses their own term against them. He says, actually, you're the dog. You're the one who's cut off. You're the one who's outside of God's love, God's community, God's people. These men teaching this lie, these guys are are dogs, evil doers. They have this evil and confusing message What's Paul getting at here? What are we supposed to take away from these descriptions? Paul's helping us to understand the dangers of false teaching, the dangers of a message that that runs contrary to God's word. It's dangerous. and We're supposed to understand that adding works to the gospel, it's going to kill joy. If we get really specific here, adding something to what Jesus has done is going to rob us of joy. It's going to steal our joy. Why? Because now so much depends on you. Adding works to the gospel, it's going to require that you put confidence in something that's weak, in something that actually can't offer you real and lasting joy. It's confidence in you, confidence in your ability, your flesh, your works, you have to put your trust and your hope in your potential to keep it up, to keep going. In their case, it's these rituals. In our case, it would be, let me try to earn God's favor by being good enough. I I believe the gospel, but let me also try to do good stuff. Try to make him happy that way. Maybe I can earn God's favor by spending an extra five minutes in prayer. Maybe God will be happy with me and allow me into heaven because I'm going to church and and I never miss a service. We start to think that way. We're trying to earn God's favor. Junior Harris, that is not the gospel. That is not the truth of God's word, that mindset goes so against God's word, it contradicts, it it conflicts with everything that we learn about what Christ has done for us. 
Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not your doing. It is the gift of God. It's not a result of works. We're not to trust in anything other than Christ to save us. I think we have time. We can look at a little passage in Galatians chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2 to 6, Paul addressed this very thing here. If you add to the gospel, if you embrace Jesus plus works, Galatians 5, 2, Jesus is now no benefit for you. You just lost everything. You're now under obligation to keep the whole law, Galatians 5, 3. You're cut off from Christ. You're fallen from grace, fallen from the very thing that's saved you, verse 4. Look at verse 6. In Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. That's what matters. We aren't to think even for a moment, even a second, that we can or should add anything to the gospel. Jesus is so enough. What he did for us, we don't need to add to it. And that's incredible. And if you start to think that your salvation depends on you, I guarantee you, you'll be robbed of joy. If you don't have that truth, you can't have joy. You'll be too busy trying to keep your salvation. You'll be too worried about sin. You'll be too anxious about losing God's love. You'll be overwhelmed and constantly asking, am I doing enough? Am I obedient enough? Have I kept enough of God's word? Have I lived pleasing to God? That's a restless existence. That's a horrible life and not a life that God's called us to. Such assurance and peace in the gospel. Basics of the gospel are so crucial. This is why we have to know what the Bible says. We have to know what the Bible teaches. We have to know what God's word is and has for us. A Christian fights for joy by knowing the truth of God's word. They don't lose joy because of some lie or some dangerous teaching or even some feeling that they get. They live confident that they're saved. The Bible makes it clear you're aren't meant to trust in anything other than the reality that Jesus alone can save you. It's Jesus who pays your debt, not you. It's Jesus who pays for sin, not you. When you add to the gospel of Christ, you cheapen it. You make it so much worse. When you add to the gospel, you paying something, it, it, it disgraces what Christ has done, and it's now not the gospel at all. A Christian fights for joy. They protect their joy by living the truth of God's word. Your heart can't be trusted. Jeremiah 17, 9. You have a heart problem. Heart's deceitful, desperately sick. Protect your joy by knowing the truth of God's word. What else? How do we have joy? What's here in Philippians chapter three? How do we fight for joy? Last, number three, a Christian clings to their love for Jesus. Not only do we protect our joy by knowing the word, but we grow in our joy by loving our savior. 
verse 3, we are, Paul says, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. This is who you are, Christian. You don't need the, in their case, the temple any longer. You don't need these Old Testament ceremonies and rituals. You don't need that stuff. We worship God now through the Spirit. We worship Him in spirit and truth. John 4, the temple is not necessary anymore. We can worship Christ all the time. We have access to the Father through His Son. We're worshiping Him right now. As we give our attention to His Word, we don't need the the rituals that were in the Old Testament anymore. And also, we give honor, we give glory to Christ. We, we glorify his name, especially as we, we recount what he's done for us. As we think about the gospel, as we proclaim the truth of what he's done, we, we honor him, we worship him. It's absurd to think that we would ever put confidence in our own flesh. Paul's just saying, we, we don't, Christians don't put confidence in themselves. We know it's not about us. We know it's about Christ. So you can't be a Christian and think that Jesus isn't enough. You can't be a Christian and think that you have to add something to his sacrifice. Yet Paul's fear is that that's what would happen. It's every pastor's fear for their church. We emphasize our works over what Jesus has done, it's a huge problem. It just it makes the miraculous mundane. It makes it just so weak, so defective. When you put your confidence in what you can do, everything quickly becomes about you, not Jesus. And you know what? We're right back to where we started. Now it's all about you. It's all about the happiness that you can produce, the happiness that you're chasing in the stuff that's around us. No matter what's going on, if you're a Christian, you should be able to say, I have Jesus. And that is so enough. So enough. You might be in the fight of your life with some sin, but you know you know the truth of the Bible. You know Jesus will forgive you. You know Jesus has paid for that sin. You know you're called to fight that sin. But you don't have to let it rob you of joy. You might be in the darkest trial you've ever faced, but you can have joy in your life because of where you stand with Christ. Your joy will grow when you spend time with your Lord. Your joy will increase when you study his word. Your joy will, will grow when you talk to him in prayer. When you grow in your faith, your joy grows right along with it. As Christians, we have the ultimate reasons to be joyful. It's Christ and it's, it's him alone. Rejoice in the Lord and insist on joy. Fight for joy Cling to Christ. This is so important. If you don't have a relationship with with Christ, I can guarantee you, you're you're fighting for joy in all the wrong things. The Bible gives us an incredible example of this exact thing. There was a man named Solomon, 
And he wrote a, a book called Ecclesiastes. And Solomon, if you're not familiar, he, is, he was smarter than you could ever hope to be. Solomon had more money than you could possibly imagine. And Solomon put this very question to the test. Is there joy outside of God? And he put that big brain of his, and he put that fat wallet to the test. Every pleasure he could think about, he chased. Every possession that he could imagine or dream up, he obtained. Even wisdom. He went after more wisdom and more knowledge. And with all of it, he described it as so empty, so meaningless. It did not give him the joy he thought it would. And it actually leads him to the place in Ecclesiastes chapter 2 where he says, who can have joy apart from God? And he writes the answer in the next verse. God is the giver of wisdom. God is the giver of knowledge. And God is the giver of joy to the one who's acceptable in God's sight. There is no joy apart from Christ. You might get a fraction of it, and it might last for a few moments, but there is no such thing as lasting, true joy apart from God. And if you're a Christian this morning, Don't be tempted by the world. Don't be tempted by those things around you to let go of the joy that is yours in Christ. Fight for it. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time this morning. Lord, I pray for these young people to God, not be tempted by sin, not be tempted by trouble to think that there is no joy in you. Lord, I pray for these young people who don't know you, Father, that they would realize that the joys that they're chasing are fleeting. <laughs> the joys that they're, they're, they're going after aren't going to last. Lord, for the young believers in the room, would you, would you help us to, to just grab onto this principle for today, for the week in front of us, to not be tempted to think that there's better joy in something besides you, because there isn't. Help us to see how incredible and rich the joy that you offer us truly is, Lord. Help us to fight for it. Pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.